What is good, everybody? Do I have some good news for you today? We are done with Romans 14. I am, look, I'm excited because I'm looking forward to getting into our Genesis slash creation series once we're done with Romans. Um, I mean, it's probably going to be another month or so since we like to take like eight episodes to get through one chapter, but we're getting through it. And I hope y'all don't mind how long it takes to get through these chapters, you know, because I could do like a whole chapter an episode, but I feel like I'd be doing the text a disservice by skipping over some pretty valuable information that I want to share with y'all. But look, nevertheless, we're here and Paul has an important message that he's giving in this chapter, a message that for individualistic cultures, uh, such as one that I live in myself, this message can be overshadowed by other things that we want to glean from the text. And and I hope that we're able to look past that. Because as a person who lives in an individualistic culture, my scriptural point of view is typically viewed through the lens of how does this affect me? When I read the stories in the Bible, I think, oh, their culture must have worked exactly like my culture 2,000 years later worked. And that can really lead us down a road of just misunderstanding some things that would have gone unsaid in their context. So when Paul starts talking about not fighting over matters of opinion, I immediately start thinking about how each individual needs to keep their opinions to themselves and just walk in love. And when you do all that, you'll be living a better life for God. It's very me-centered. But for Paul, being a person that lived in a collectivist culture, his idea and his intentions are completely different. Paul's concern, especially in this chapter, is that the collective body of Christ is able to grow and prosper in an area that is not welcoming of Christianity, is not welcoming of this new movement of followers of Jesus. So when Paul finds out that the Roman church has some infighting going on, and this infighting potentially could threaten the larger body of Christ, Paul feels that it's necessary to, to pay attention to this. And Paul is taking steps that he expects every person in this church to implement, not simply for their own betterment so they can feel better about themselves, but for the betterment of the entire church as a collective unit. Because like Paul has already stated in this letter to the Romans, everyone is a part of the family of Abraham. If you accept Christ, you are a part of the family of Abraham, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and because of that, you should start acting like you are a part of that family. Now, before we hop into this, you might have noticed the title of this episode. Uh, it's Vaccines, Collectivism, and Idols. And vaccines are a hot topic right now. And I, I really do think that Romans 14 gives us some principles that we can apply to this heated debate and um struggle that is going on in many different parts of the world. And I think that the principles that we can glean from Romans 14, I think they might shock you. They may upset you. They may encourage you. But ultimately, what the conclusion that Paul comes to when it comes to a, a stalemate, a debate such as the vaccine, it's a conclusion 
that should ultimately guide each and every one of us. And it's a conclusion that's going to call for each and every one of us to step up our game a little bit. So if you want to listen to that, stick around to the end, uh, because the end of the chapter, Paul gives us some principles that we're going to get into. But we're going to be reading verses 16 through 23. We're going to finish us off. Let's get it, Paul. He says, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right, like we always do, we're going to break this down verse by verse. Verse 16 Once again, Paul says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And you know, I wish this principle would be applied or lived out more in the body of Christ. And I know I need to live this out in my own life. I think each and every one of us could do a little bit better in this area. Um, I, I I want us to notice kind of the language that Paul uses. When he says, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, The word that we translate as evil is actually the Greek word for blasphemed. And also notice, he says, the things that we regard as good, and we've defined good in in previous chapters, but the good that he's talking about here is not necessarily talking about the ultimate good of following God's will, but the good here is contextualized to talk about these matters of opinion that Paul is pointing to. Holy days, what kind of food you can and can't eat etc., so on and so forth. And so the good, your matters of opinion that you believe are good, Paul says, do not let those be regarded as blasphemous or evil. These things that are your opinion, one, they should not be spoken of as evil or sinful because as Paul has stated multiple times throughout this chapter, these things are not unclean in and of themselves they're they're just there they're not bad but if if you deem it as bad then for you it's bad but that doesn't mean that you can be spoken of as doing something evil or doing something sinful or against god so paul wants to really make that clear that as as a believer um don't just sit back and and allow yourself to be spoken of as a sinful, terrible person over a matter of opinion. But also this statement can go both ways. Not only to not let people say that what you're doing is evil or blasphemous if it's a matter of opinion, but also you yourself don't go around claiming that these matters of opinion of other people are evil or blasphemous. This is where we start trying to to do witch hunts in areas where there's no witches. And and Paul would rather us actually focus on calling out the evil of actual evil things, of actual 
sin. That's the type of judgment that that Paul would rather us look out for, is the, the sinful things that are going on in the church. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So right off the bat, it's uh, important for us to note that God's kingdom, like Paul said, is not defined by food, drink, observing certain holy days. It's not defined by these matters of opinion. What God's kingdom is defined is by his righteousness and peace and joy. And it seems that Paul is making the claim that when we just judge each other and and blaspheme them over matters of opinion, that this action is not fostering righteousness, peace, or joy. This is not God's kingdom on earth. We're we're not doing a good job of, of showing God's kingdom on earth when we are behaving in this way over matters of opinion. But what does foster righteousness, peace, and joy? That's the question. And I think the answer is implied in the very next verse. He goes on to say, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. Oh, so it seems like the way that we can foster righteousness, peace, and joy is by being one who serves Christ. And by serving Christ, we would then love our neighbor, so on and so forth. And it's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying as whoever believes in Christ is acceptable to God. Whoever believes in Christ is the one that fosters righteousness, peace, and joy. But I think it's important to make a distinction between the definitions of believe and serve. Because one one can believe that Christ is Lord and completely and utterly not serve him. One can hold that belief. One could hold the belief that, yeah, Jesus was a real, real dude and yeah, you know, I, I'd give it to you. Yeah, he's God. Sure, he rose from the dead. Cool. Yeah, I, I believe that that Jesus Christ is God, that he is who he says he is. But that belief doesn't then equal servitude in the following of, of his commands. But the one who serves Christ not only believes in Christ, but they also serve him. They follow his will. And they do what he has asked. And I think that serve is a weak translation, in my opinion. Because the word that gets translated as serves comes from the Greek word uh, doulos, which just means to serve as a slave. Or, or if we go further into definition of having all personal ownership rights assigned to the owner. This is a powerful term. So really, verse 18 could read, whoever is a slave to Christ, is acceptable to God and approved by men. That seems to raise the bar to a higher standard of loyalty. That seems to take it up a notch. And and maybe for some of you, hearing that we are to be a slave to Christ, it may be unsettling. You may not want that. You may think, I don't want to be a slave to anybody. I'm my own person. But... For, for the apostles, the people who walked with Jesus, who knew him intimately, they were perfectly fine 
calling themselves slaves to Christ. James does this in, in James chapter 1, in the very first verse. Your English translation may read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the word for servant is the same word that Paul uses here, and it means slave. So literally, James is saying, I am a slave to God, and I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Which honestly, if you think about it at a, at a wider lens, we, we are honored to be slaves of Jesus Christ. We're honored. He created us. He died for us. He paid for our sins. He's our patron. The very least that we can do is give away all of our own personal ownership of our own body, which really doesn't even exist, and we can give it to him and allow him to be the one that rules over us because he ultimately does know what is best for us. He ultimately knows the the path that we should take and the way that we should act amongst each other. Because if we had any idea, we wouldn't need him. But clearly, we do. So I don't know about you, but I will gladly be a slave to Christ. And as Paul says, if you are, then you're acceptable to God and approved by men. On to verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding. This is a clue that Paul is more concerned with the collective body of Christ and not necessarily concerned about our own individualistic feelings of self-satisfaction and gratification by being nice to people and feeling like we're good Christians following God's will. Paul's concern is with the entire body of Christ and how it's presented. Because in this culture, in a collectivist culture, like what Paul lived in, a person was not defined by their own individual traits and opinions and beliefs and actions. But the person was defined by the traits and opinions and actions of the collective group that they were a part of, of their community. E. Randolph Richards and Richard James says this in their book, Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes. They say this, quote, Individualist societies tend to think of community as being the sum of the individuals. We bring our individual identities, characteristics, values, and talents, and the sum of this becomes our community. In collectivist societies, however, the individual is the sum of the community. The community identity, characteristics, values, and talents form the identity of those who all belong to that community. Collectives are defined by the things they share with others, things such as shared blood, shared interest, shared history, shared land, and shared loyalty. They define their core identity as being part of a group in distinction to other groups. So with that in mind, with that differentiation between individualistic societies and collectivist societies like what Paul was a part of, we now we, we get a better understanding of Paul's motive behind what he's doing here in Romans 14. Because Paul understands that to every other group, to the outside world, especially in living in Rome, a, a place that if you mess up one bit, Caesar has no problem laying down the hammer. He understands that this newly started Christian community 
was going to be fully defined and viewed by its reputation in the community. They didn't care if there were specific individuals within the Roman church that were cool, you know, they had a great reputation, they were cool and nice. That didn't matter because it was the group as a collective that was judged. And from the judgment of that collective group, then the individual's judgment within that group would follow. It's completely opposite of how we have it today. Paul does not want the Christian church in Rome to be viewed as combative, hostile, rude, prone to infighting, and unable to mend ties. Paul wants the church to be viewed as a unified body of diverse opinions centered around the core fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants them to be viewed, as he says in verse 19, as a group that makes for peace and mutual upbringing. Because every single person within that group individually would automatically have a stigma or a judgment on them based off of what the collective group was viewed as. That's completely different with with how we view things today and how we judge people. We want to judge people by their own individual traits and what they have done and who they are as a person and their unique factors and their unique point of view. That's not how collectivist cultures in general viewed things. And it seems clear that Paul is really wanting them to be a unified front, not only for themselves, but also for everybody looking in to see that, hey, these people that are following Jesus, yeah, it's a new group, right? They have some fringe ideas. They said some dude rose from the dead and he was born of a virgin. But at the very least, I mean, look at the group. They're doing great things. They're peaceful. They love each other. They, they all, they're all different. But they still unify around this Jesus guy. That is what Paul wants the church in Rome to be viewed as. As a collective group, all pointed towards one thing, and that is serving Jesus. On to verse 20. He says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So Paul reiterates his points that we covered last week, found in verse 14 through 15, and I'll reread it here. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He continues, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, or if you have it pulled up on your computer, on your phone, uh, look, look along with me here at verses 15 and verse 20. Because the literary parallels made by Paul invoke the true nature of mankind. Verse 15 and verse 20 are parallels to each other. They're both claiming to not destroy something because of food. Don't allow food or this matter of opinion to then destroy. Same verbiage, same subject. It's pretty clear that Paul is using these as parallels that we can then compare and contrast. So I'll read them both side by side. And if you're looking at your Bible, you can see this with me. Verse 15, once again, he says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Then verse 20, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. They're parallel thoughts, and they're meant to be compared. And so we can see kind of the wordplay 
that Paul is doing. And so from this literary structure, Paul is making a comparison between the one for whom Christ died in verse 15 and the work of God in verse 20. And with this parallel, we can see that Paul is comparing the one for whom Christ died with the work of God, saying that they're one and the same. If you're a person for who Christ died, which is everybody, then you're also the work of God. And this idea stems all the way back to Genesis 1. I love how New Testament authors, they, they pull things from Genesis 1, and it's really cool how they do it. I think Paul is really uh, leaning towards Genesis 1, verse 28. And it says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, how does this... What does this have to do with the work of God or the one whom Christ died? Well, let's point out a few things, and hopefully you can track with me here. So in Genesis 1.28, when God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, the word image, which in Hebrew is selim, and likeness, which in Hebrew is demut, are most commonly used to refer to physical statues of stone or wood. And these words are usually translated as idol, or statue. So when God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the Hebrew words literally mean idol or statue. And with this understanding of human beings being an image or an idol or a physical representation of God, however you want to try and define that, the bottom line is it, it makes sense why when God gives Israel the Ten Commandments, it makes sense why the second commandment is to not make idols. Because if humanity understood who we were created to be, we were created to be the idol of God, the image of God. So how foolish would it be for us to make an idol when we, in fact, are that idol, we're that image? Of God. But anyway, this makes sense of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when we get this narrative of God creating Adam. And it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And just a cool little uh, translation thing here is that the Hebrew word for formed is the word used to describe a potter with his clay. So, with all this in mind, Genesis clearly shows us that we are God's work, we're God's handiwork. He literally formed us like a potter forms clay. We're his, we're his work. We're his statue. We're his idol that he created in his image. And because of that, Paul does not want us destroying the work of God, the one for whom Christ died. On to verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm read that again. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. All right, here's the fun part. This is the, this is the best part of Romans 14, in my opinion. I love it. This is the can of worms that we opened up last episode. And I just let the worms crawl all around on the floor. Didn't really give you an explanation. <laughs> But now we're going to clean them up, and it's going to make a little bit more sense. 
Paul seems to be pretty confident in the end of this letter when he says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And this leads us to the question, are there certain things that are sins for some, but okay for others? And from everything that we have learned in this chapter, with Paul pointing out how, hey, people got people have different opinions. And if they are convinced with all their heart that what they are doing is right and that if they don't do it, it's a sin and they're sinning against God, if that is what they think, then that's okay. That's okay. And if they end up not doing that, and it goes against their conscience, then it's a sin. That's, a, that's what this entire chapter has been about. So yes, there are certain things that are sins for some and not sins for others. And once again, we're speaking towards matters of opinion. These are things that are not stated in Scripture. So don't go around saying, hey, I can murder. It's a sin for some, but it's not a sin. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's matters of opinion. And with that being said... We know that each person has their own conscience and their own beliefs towards these matters of opinion. So now what probably most of y'all have been waiting for, let's take a look at a very controversial topic today. And that is the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. I'm not going to give my opinion on it because my opinion doesn't matter. We all have our own opinions and our own conscience when it regards to these type of things. This is what Paul's been talking about this whole time, but I will give you some principles because there are Christians who believe with all their heart that the vaccine is safe and effective and that all people should take it in order to preserve life. And these are Christians who love and follow Jesus just as good as anyone else possibly could. But then there's also Christians who love and follow Jesus as best as anyone possibly could, who believe with all their heart that the vaccine has certain risks and that in order to preserve life, it should be everyone's personal choice and it should not be forced and they may not want to take it. And I think it's important for all of us to understand that the Bible does not give commands regarding the acceptance of medical treatments across the entire body of Christ. It, it simply doesn't. And, and you know, I've heard both sides try and find obscure biblical arguments to support their positions, but at the end of the day, we have to understand that this topic and many other topics, it, these come down to matters of opinion and the matters of any particular person's conscience. And with that being said, according to Paul, if you are not convinced of the vaccine and you believe it is morally wrong to take it, then for you, taking it is a sin. And also, according to Paul, if you are convinced that the vaccine is what you need to take, that it is morally wrong to not take it, and that you are being a good Christian by taking it, then for you, it is a sin if you don't get the vaccine. And this may be an answer that many of you don't like. Maybe you were hoping that somewhere in the Bible, God falls on, yes, take it, or no, don't take it. Maybe you were hoping that this would be more clear cut. Maybe you were hoping that someone like me would share my opinion or anyone else. But at the end of the day, 
Paul expected them in their matters of opinion, and also I would say us, to follow your conscience to the best of your ability. Seek wisdom, pray, and whatever you do, do it to honor God. Now here is the important part. And in the process of doing that, Paul states this very clearly to the people of Rome. And this sentiment would stay exactly the same 2,000 plus years later. That we are not supposed to demean, belittle, attack, cancel, censor, hate, joke about our fellow Christians who have a different stance on the vaccine, on protocols, on mandates, on healthcare, on politics, on how you should raise your kids, on any of it. Anyone who has a difference of opinion than you, we are called to love them. We are called to not cause them to stumble. We are called to be a part of a community of mutual uplifting. That is what's important. Because whether you take it or not, you are still going to have to go in front of the judgment seat of God. And you're going to have to answer for how you treated fellow believers and how you lived your life. Whether you lived it for Christ or whether you lived it to demean and belittle people who think differently than you. And with that, we have finished Romans 14.